My name is Dave Dorst. I'm the associate pastor. If I haven't met you, I won't see too many new faces, but it's great to have you here this morning. We're continuing in our sermon series on the book of Ephesians. So there should be an outline for you. Uh, I think at some point the sermon title changed from the gospel walk to the gospel change. Because next week's going to be a little bit more about the gospel walk. I read a story about H.A. Ironside. He was a preacher and evangelist in the early 20th century. And he tells the story of when he lived in San Francisco. And he had just given his testimony to kind of a large crowd in the middle of the city. Uh, he was part of the Salvation Army, and there was a band, and, and it was all part of a kind of an evangelistic meeting. And a man in the crowd, at the end of his talk, his presentation, walked up to him and handed him a card. And he, he read it out loud to the crowd, and it said, Sir, I challenge you to debate with me the question, agnosticism versus Christianity, next Sunday at 4 p.m. Obviously, this man was an agnostic and wanted Ironside to come. And so Ironside agreed. And he said, I'll, I would love to come. I will debate you. I have one condition. And that is that you have to bring two people with you. One man, one woman. And... These two people have to have, in the past, lived very dark, sinful lives, whether it was addiction or criminal behavior, something where their lives were a bit hopeless. And then they heard the message of agnosticism, latched onto it, and their lives were changed. They were freed from addiction, uh, their criminal behavior, and now they were living in hope. So if you produce those two people, Ironside said, I will bring a hundred such people who had dark pasts, who embraced the message of Christianity and changed and were freed from their sins and addictions. And he said the man sort of gave him a dismissive wave and walked away. And he comments that they will know that in all the annals of unbelief, no one ever heard of a history of negation, such as agnosticism, making bad men and women good. And they also knew that this is what Christianity has been doing all down through the centuries. Our gospel proves itself by what it accomplishes. As redeemed people from every walk of life, delivered from every type of sin, prove the regenerating and keeping power of the Christ of whom the Bible speaks. So with that reminder, that Christianity, when it is preached and applied and lived, is effective in changing people's lives. Let's read this morning's text that describes the contrast between our old lives and our new lives. So turn with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our paths. So I pray that you would open and illuminate our minds, that we may better understand your word, and our lives may be conformed to what we have understood. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There's a lot here. Many of the preachers have definitely broken this up into two sermons, if not more, but I think we can get through this. It's We're coming after the passage earlier in chapter 4 that taught that we should strive for maturity in our faith so that the body of Christ will function well. And then maybe we're backing up because the first three verses in this passage remind the Ephesians and remind us what we once were. Verses 17 through 19, what we once were. Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, maybe you're like me. And you grew up in a Christian home and you don't really identify with descriptions of life before Christ because you knew from an early age. I think sometimes those of us who have that testimony kind of wish we had a little bit of that. Man, I wish I had some dark, cool stories to tell. 
to be interesting. And, but, you know, the, the people that really lived through dark times say, no, you don't. You should praise God and thank God that you didn't have to live through that. And it's interesting as, as we work through those verses, there's sort of a flow of, of how Paul describes what he calls Gentiles, what we would just call unbelievers. And I've sort of written in your outline, and, and you kind of see the flow of, of that the hardness of heart is the root cause that leads to ignorance and, and futility in one's mind, which, which means that then they are alienated from the life of God, which leads to their being darkened in their understanding, with the result that they are, at the end, he says, callous and given to sensuality, greedy and impure. This language is very reminiscent of Romans chapter 1, where Paul teaches that un, the ungodly suppress the knowledge of God. Do you remember that passage? A couple verses from that, Romans 1, 21-25a. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There are many descriptions in the New Testament. And, and now someone is going to say, maybe object, hey, I know unbelievers, people who are not Christians, who are very upstanding and probably more moral than a lot of Christians. And you know what? That's very possible. And you know, this is just a, this is a very general description. It's not intended to explain everyone's lives. And so what happens, maybe in a culture where morality, outward morality, where uh, good behavior, good manners, hard work, those kind of things, where those will benefit an unbeliever, then they will embrace them. They might outwardly look a lot better than those in a culture where you can get a lot away with a lot of dark deeds. But the foundation is there. And I think that's what Paul is driving, that if your heart is spiritually dead and your mind is turned away from God and towards worldly priorities and the desires of the flesh, then you are capable of any sin. And I think what else is clear is that lost people, those that don't know Jesus Christ, don't realize how lost they are. You've probably never met an unbeliever who said, you know, I'm feeling like my thinking is spiritually futile. Or, gosh, my darkened hard heart is leading me to be too greedy and sensual. And if you do meet someone like that, they're very close to the kingdom. 
Spend time with him. The Spirit is working. Spend time with him either way. But No, everyone justifies their behavior by their own standard, right? And I think what Paul's saying is ungodliness works its way from the heart to the mind and then outwardly to actions and behaviors. And so as he prescribes what it looks like for the new self, maybe that's going to look similar. And I guess, I just want to point out, this, there's not a day where someone says, hmm, what do I want? Uh, hardness or softness of heart? I guess I'll choose hardness. Um, ignorance and futility or spiritual enlightenment and hope? I, I guess I'll take the futility part. Um, or, you know, darkness and callousness or light and life and peace. It's, it's not that there's just this logical choice. And everyone just chooses wrong. This, it's Paul's description of our natural condition. It's a person's default settings, whether they realize it or not. And Paul is not slamming unbelievers. He's not criticizing. He's just pointing out the state they're in and that we were in. Because that is the contrast to what the redeemed life looks like. And so verses 20 through 24 tell us what we are now. Verses 20 through 24. Let me read them again. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I hope, hope you've heard of Augustine, the great bishop and theologian from the 4th century. There's a story about him that he was visiting a city where he was now a converted believer trying to walk the Christian life. And this is a place where he used to visit as an unbeliever. And if you know much about Augustine, you know that his biggest struggle after becoming a Christian was being sexually pure. In fact, his, his fame, one of his famous prayers is, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. And so he's walking around this city, and one of his former intimate companions recognizes him, and she kind of runs up to him and starts talking. And he's sort of polite to her, but sort of trying to quickly move away. And um, he didn't respond to her as he would have when he was younger. And as he walked away, she was sort of puzzled why, you know, why he didn't treat her like he used to and maybe invite her back to his room. And, and so she says, she thought maybe he just didn't really recognize her. And so she, she says, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine turns around and says, yes, I know, but it is not I. Augustine understood that he was a new man. 
that his old self had to be put off. For he was now created in the likeness of God, in true holiness and righteousness. And so were the Ephesians, and so are we, new creations. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life and brings you alive spiritually, and you believe the gospel and repent and are brought into God's family, you are a new person. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You can walk up to your friends and introduce yourself again. They'll say, yeah, we know who you are. Well, not exactly. You look the same. You live the same place. You're still related to the same people. Things around you may not have changed much, but you are a new person. You have a new self. And you are learning Christ, as verse 20 says. You are learning His truth, His ways. That mind, your mind that was spiritually in the dark is being renewed. You begin to yearn to read the Scriptures, to strive for holy living. So now Paul spends the rest of the chapter pointing out the what and the why of some of those changes in behavior. And so verses 25 through 33 tell us what we're to become, what we are to become. And Paul lists five general areas where the change from old man to new man will most obviously be seen. And it's interesting that for each area, Paul doesn't just say, okay, stop doing this. Right? Because you can't just stop one sin without finding something to replace it. Right? He says, stop this, do that. Because when you replace it with a godly action, another sin won't rush in behind it. And sin, not only that, but he gives them a reason kind of a theological basis for each one. So let's work through thinking about that. The first one is verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Stop lying. Stop dancing around the truth, half-truths, all those things. Start telling the full truth. Because you are members of one body, right? Ephesians has been crafting a vision of the church, and that is an important thing, that if we deceive one another and don't speak honestly, that we're hurting the whole body of Christ. We're joined to one another. It does no good to hurt another part of your own body with deception, And there's not a hint of falsehood or deception in God. Right? He is pure truth, and we should strive towards that. The second one is verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And verse 27 says, give no opportunity to the devil. I think that's linked. And you surely notice that this passage starts with, be angry, right? Which is not so much 
a command, but an acknowledgement that you're going to get angry. So when you do, how you respond, how you work through that is the important part. There's a big difference between venting your anger and working constructively through it. I always remind couples in premarital counseling about this verse because it's way too easy to ignore something that you're angry about and, and go to bed and, and you just want to forget about it and you, you wake up in the morning, you've probably forgotten about it, but it's still there. And it's, it's, as soon as that gets triggered, it's probably going to come back double. And I think there's a real key to how the devil can get in there and get a foothold and work in your anger that never gets resolved, never gets settled. Third part, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Seeking honest work. Right? Because people may need you to be generous with them. And so, this is such an opportunity and such an outward-facing reality that you either unjustly take from others and are a burden and kind of a menace and, and you dishonor Jesus in the fact that you won't work and that you're a drain on society and other people. And yet you have an opportunity to seek honest work where you then accumulate and become a blessing to those around you. They may need you to give. Hopefully that's an easy choice for a renewed heart. Four, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. We're to take off, stop our corrupt talk, begin to edify one another, right? Because other people need to hear words that build them up, right? Again, in the context of the body. What good is it to break down the other parts of the body that you're a member of? And this is definitely more than just refraining from cursing, right? It's gossip, it's grumbling, it's biting criticism, it's tearing people down. I, I think we, for the most part, we don't have any idea the power of our words to destroy someone. And how much do we reflect the heart of God when we encourage and compliment and build up I hope, again, the renewed heart makes those choices easier for us. Number five, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's going to kind of lump all of that together in the sense that 
I think a lot of those things that he lists is, is that we, it's very easy to cling to resentment and sort of nurture these cancerous attitudes of bitterness and malice and holding things against people, which is the opposite of diving into forgiveness. Because you model Christ when you do that. And you grieve the Holy Spirit when you don't. Right? We're all slighted at times. We all get verbally wounded. People undercut us. People betray us. People twist what we have to say. They gossip about us. They sin against us. It's a fact, I think, in every area of life, including the church. And you have a choice how you respond. You cling to it and nurture those wounds and don't want to let those go. Or do you seek forgiveness? You put a greater priority on peace and the bonds of brotherhood and sisterhood than in your own little desire for revenge and justice. And I think naturally, when we look at a list like this, as, as we start to think about what our actions and our behavior are going to look like, it's, it's very easy to realize that none of us is going to do this perfectly, right? And as you start to do these, you may be tempted to wonder, hey, if I don't do these things well enough, will I be condemned? Will God withdraw his favor from me? Will I lose my salvation? There's, there's real fear. Okay, if this is what this amazing life looks like, I'm really far from it. What does verse 30 say? First, it says it's very possible to grieve the Holy Spirit, which I take in this context to mean speaking and acting in ungodly ways towards your fellow believers. But then it says, what did you see the next phrase? By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. If you are sealed for the day of redemption, you are locked in. You will not lose your salvation. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that you will receive the full promise of eternal salvation. How you live, how you behave does not threaten your salvation. It certainly doesn't earn it. Talked about that a lot. If, in fact, you were definitely saved by Christ in the first place, all by grace, not by works, right? Ephesians 2. But as the book of James and even Ephesians 2.10 remind us, your works, your behavior are designed for you by God and they're great indicators of whether you're saved or not. That's where James is driving home. And it's either going to be that you are a good or a negative model for the watching, unbelieving world. You'll never do it perfectly. But we have the helper, the spirit inside of us. Right? 
And the beautiful thing is that our actions, our behaviors naturally change. Yeah, you have to work, but we have a good head start. Because as our hearts and our minds are renewed, the very essence of who we are has changed. And so Jesus talks about different trees bearing different fruits. You are a new tree bearing new fruit. And we take on a new self filled with the Holy Spirit. We become stronger. And we strive towards holiness and righteousness. And eventually, we'll be glorified in perfect and beautiful. And as I read one of Tim Keller's sermons, he says this, we are on that trajectory because Jesus did the opposite. I hadn't thought about that. But it's true. Jesus was glorious and perfect, ruling and reigning with the Father and the Spirit in heaven from all eternity. He was all-powerful, all-dominion, all-authority. And yet, what did He do? He laid it aside to take on a weak, suffering human body. Jesus was perfect when He was here on earth. As a human being, he was perfect, but, so where's the sin part? Well, on the cross, he took on our sin. He plunged himself deeply, took on every sin of every believer ever. First Corinthians, Second Corinthians says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, became And when we learn Christ, we are taking on His redemption on our behalf. And we work towards the opposite. He left glory to take on sin. We lay off our sin and are destined for eternal glory. And I plead with you, if you have not learned Christ, if you have not received His salvation, His forgiveness, His new self, Maybe you don't necessarily recognize yourself in this description of of the Gentiles, of unbelievers, but you need Jesus to change you. You need His death to count for you, that He paid for your sins so that you wouldn't be responsible for them, that you wouldn't suffer eternal separation from God after death. And I would say that don't worry about the latter parts of this verses yet. Don't worry about all the changing behavior stuff. You'll have plenty of time to work on that. You don't need that to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That comes first. And then Jesus changes you from the inside. And then he'll work his way out. Come to him now with all your impurity. And learn Jesus. But for those of us who have the new self, look again and see where the Lord is leading you to examine your witness. If there's areas of your life where you, the Spirit is working on you and you're still making some progress. And thank God that you have the Spirit inside you 
and the new self to take you along that road and that we are sealed to the day of redemption. Amen. Lord God, thank you for this powerful passage. Thank you for this powerful book. We could spend a year, years in Ephesians and truly mine all that it has. But God, thank you that Paul has such a compelling and beautiful description of what our lives were like before in the darkness and futility, the hardness of our hearts that God in His great mercy, nothing that we did, decided to change us, to come to us, to give us the great gift of salvation. And so as we come and profess Christ, as we learn of Christ, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us and we have a new self. And our heart beats for the truth and our minds are renewed to the truth. And yet, the change is not immediate. We don't become perfect in holiness. It is a great struggle and you designed it so. We have the rest of our lives to struggle with sin and becoming more like Jesus. Lord, these areas that Paul points out that we can easily be led into falsehood, that we sin in our anger, that we would rather steal than work hard, that we speak to tear people down, and that we hold on to grudges and anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. Lord, change those things in us because we recognize that Christ forgave us. Christ forgave all the sins committed against him. And he gives us the power to change slowly, gradually. But thank you for that vision of the Christian life. Give us strength to walk in your ways, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I can't always hear you up on the stage because of monitors and amplifiers, but you sound great. I really enjoy hearing our congregation sing loud. Hear the benediction adapted from 1 Kings chapter 8. May the Lord, who has never failed in any of his good promises, who does not leave or forsake his own, may he turn your hearts to him to walk in his ways and to keep his commands that he gave our fathers in the faith. Amen.